Okay, so welcome. I'm back in studio with Cameron Cohen and Brandy McSleen. Brady McSleen. Oh, Brady. Okay, sorry. Brady McSleen. Okay, here I am. Don't worry, everybody makes a mistake. I said Brandy, didn't I? Mm -hmm. Wow. I just Very common. I just stick an end in there, right? Yes. Uh, no idea how many times people do that. <laughs> oh yeah. my goodness. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I want I want Cameron to help me um, and viewers to get into the right framework of of fashion necessary for this show. So give me a few abstract thoughts that get people on the frequency of fashion. And um, I mean, from a consumer standpoint and also from an industry standpoint, what, what's your approach there? Well, one of the things that I think uh, Brady and I discovered when we just got done with our all about fashion podcast series on the Cameron journal was and I didn't really put two and two together, but we didn't. Neither of us realized how much fashion is so influential, influential in geopolitical events. Like the want of fur got furriers to go into the interior parts of North America looking for fur. That led to European colonization of North America because people wanted fur on their clothes. Um, cotton, the desire for cotton and cheap fiber, transatlantic slave trade, the founding of this country, the Civil War. I mean, so when you start to look at these major historical events, somewhere in there is a thread, pardon the pun, to fashion and clothing and what people wear on their bodies. On top of the fact that you wear, unless you're heathen, uh, some sort of heathen, you're wearing clothes every single day. And there is a hundred people behind a t-shirt, the people that picked the fabric, the weight of the fabric, what threads were used in that fabric, how that t-shirt was constructed, what price point it was going to be at, what color it was going to be, what design it was going to have, how it was going to be displayed at the store you bought it at. That's, I mean, buy, that's three separate major industries, buyers for all of those, sales people, marketing people, all this type of thing. So just to get a t-shirt into your hands takes a small tribe of people. Um, and when you start to look at it from a 360 degree view, fashion might seem like this sort of trifling thing that doesn't matter, but it's actually a really massive business that has major effects on our lives, on the world, in ways that you might not expect. Hmm. And, it, yeah. and it is a very personal, very, very extremely personal form of art for everyone. Yeah. Every time you pick out something to wear. And interpretive, right? I mean, because it's mm -hmm. it's directly tied to the market too. So, I mean, I imagine there's some uh, top-down sort of uh, conditioning or like um, suggesting, but for the most part, it's very responsive to what you, you mentioned. Like Cameron beautifully put an anthropo anthropological framework in there and said that. Uh, you know, for hundreds and thousands of years, the cultures and the civilizations really, um, you know, they they simultaneously sh shaped their fashion, and and uh, their fashion actually shaped shaped them too, which is very interesting. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And, guys... and 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 people, I mean, it's not so much now, but fashion is was has been. It is still today because it's an indication of class. But in other civilizations and in days past, it was an indication of wealth, 
social position, occupation in many cases in indigenous tribes in this continent. It was an indication of if you were married, if you were single, if you were trans, if you were gay, I mean, it was all, all of these things. It's not, and even now, if a dude walks down the street in short shorts and a crop top, okay, like, you know, like, like you can look at them because, and, and you, even if you're wrong, there's certain assumptions you make if certain people wear certain things. Even in preparing for this podcast, I was like, well, if we're going to talk about fashion, I should look like someone who works in fashion. So <laughs> out comes the accessories that I rarely wear. Out comes the bespoke vest made by Brady herself last summer. Um, you know, and out comes the nicer, more expensive t-shirt. Um, all this type of thing, because I wanted to look like someone who has worked in fashion and owned a vintage shop, because we owned a vintage shop together, and, have, and who created the modern Denver Fashion Week that still exists to this day and under another organization. I wanted to appear like that. So I hurriedly picked clothes that made me look like someone who had done those things. And coordinated her skirt with her lipstick. Yes, and it's my aunt, great aunt's vintage dress that I redid years ago. So, you know, same thing. Oh, great yeah. aunt's vintage dress. Yeah, that repurposing, that kind of speaks about where we're at in society right now, reusing some things and repurposing. And how much of an influence does that uh, have in the uh, in the way you guys think of, of fashion? It's becoming more and more popular to do more of that. We used to, Cameron and I used to do this years and years ago, um, but it is becoming more popular in like, you see more and more of these smaller brands that are, you know, go to the thrift store, find beautiful vintage clothing, but redo them in a way that makes them make sense today. And I do that with, because I primarily work with wedding dresses. So I've definitely done that several times with women who come in with their mom's wedding dress or their grandma's that was their mom's that now is theirs. And we just remake them into something that fits today's style, but also keeps that history in it. Yeah, yeah. So for so for a layman that really doesn't understand how, how a wedding dress is created, there's things like making sure that the lines of the dress follow the you know, complement the form of the bride and uh, and you have those skills to be able to like like redesign or seamstressy kind of like ways to be able to where to take strings out, how to, you know, how to put it all back together. That's uh, yeah. that's that's interesting. So, um, I mean, you would say you have those skills, right? That's part of what I do have those skills only but only within the restraints of the physical world. So <laughs> you can't make certain things fit a way that they were never meant to fit, but I can make yeah, almost how do you explain work. that to somebody who wants to look a certain way, maybe, and it's just like, I'm sorry, honey, but it just ain't gonna, you know. That's that's her life. The brides that want <laughs> their boobs higher than the fabric can reasonably support. The, oh, I want to have my dress up, but I don't want my butt to look big. Well, the fabric has to go somewhere, honey. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's been a lot of time trying to explain science to people. Yeah. But can you find like a, and it's, it's weird how we're stuck on the female form. It's kind of a problem I have, you know, I'm going to admit, but um, you know, the, the thing is about the, the female form, let's say, you know, there's different body types. We just roughly say, you know, and this doesn't mean to degrade women or anything, but you know, like an apple shape or pear shape or, you know, these kinds of things. 
do you have things in your arsenal of of design that kind of lend themselves to yes like maybe flattering or accentuating what's what is your approach in that um i definitely do um but it also really depends because i i do the altering after they buy the dress so i don't mm. make the dress i make it fit them and so a lot of times it really depends on the dress you pick if you didn't pick a dress that's going to complement your body there's only so many things we can do if you want that dress to be exactly the same but then complement your body like this only so much yeah. we can do. Um, but there's a lot of tricks. Well, and I would also yeah. say in terms of like the broader conversation of of fashion, um, one of I, and this women's fashion has this problem particularly bad, and it's on the mind because we just talked about this on Wednesday, is, you know, designers kind of decide the shape of the woman they're going to design their clothes for. Um, and if you if you go into a store and it's like nothing here fits or things are too small or things are too large or whatever have you it's because your body style isn't the style they pick to design their clothes for and so there's going to be some differences and some variances which is why clothing sizes for women are meaningless don't get caught up on numbers they have no value they don't mean anything because they're entirely arbitrary by the designers based upon who they think is going to buy their clothes and there are some body styles that get very little design for them. Like the, if you're apple shaped, oh, you're it. That's sad. Like that's <laughs> that's that's sad. No, and I and I say this because I have a woman in my life right now who is apple shaped and hates fashion, and it is no wonder why because no clothes are designed for her body style. Everything's got to be accessorized tailored modified whatever have you because designers don't really design for that body shape parachute women oftentimes have the same problem the farther you get from hourglass the fewer options there are for you and the fewer designers are gonna do stuff sort of thing and so that makes um that makes things quite quite difficult as as well um and you'd be surprised about like even tall, thin, model-looking types can't find clothes for themselves. Like, you have yes. to be just very average, very extremely average. Or, you like, everybody needs something tailored. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, what do you guys think about iconic um, fashion moments? And I mean, I, I just mean what makes um, something in fashion, what makes it iconic? What, what would you say, Cameron? It's an expression of culture in that moment. Fashion, fashion is moved forward by a couple things. Social change is a big one. War is a big one, particularly in the last 150 years. Um, and sometimes shifting expectations. Um, and, some, and so uh, oftentimes, and Randy and I talked about this a lot, when society shifts, the first thing we do is change what we wear. It seems counterintuitive, but it really is. If you think about the pandemic, the first thing we talked about was, well, we're stuck in the house for lockdown, t-shirts and sweatpants, and oh, does anybody have an extra mask? In the in the worst global crisis to hit the globe, probably since the Black Plague, our first concern was, well, there's a pandemic outside. What are we going to wear? Right. <laughs> throwing out all of our bras and just wearing sports bras because yes. nobody cared anymore. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's like, so like, um, so I mean, I, so I, for this series, I put together 
a playlist of about five or six different fashion shows that had things that were truly iconic that lasted for different reasons. Um, the oldest of whom is uh, Dior 1947, The New Look, which is Brandy one of Brandy, 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 that's kind of one of our favorite collections. And it was the reaction to World War II. Everyone had been under fabric rationing for almost a decade at that point. And so when The New Look came along and Dior used all this fabric and huge skirts, and tight bodice with the waist, it was revolutionary because it was a reaction to years and years of rationing. And so all of a sudden, women could have a level of elegance and femininity that they hadn't had since nobody knew who Adolf Hitler was. And so, yeah, and then, but then you also fast forward 20 more years to like 1965 with um, the arrival of the Mondrian dress by Yves Saint Laurent. And that is, that dress is so iconic, it's totemic. If you want to put up something about the 60s, you can just post a picture of that dress, even without a model. And it's one of the few instantly recognizable pieces of fashion in the world. People who've never ever given a care about clothing will recognize that dress because it's totemic. So the, I found the footage of the original 1965 YSL show where that dress was first featured. And it is also revolutionary because of its construction. It is squares of colored fabric that are sewn together and those seams are covered in black. And it looks like it all was made to be that way, which is incredibly I mean, difficult to do. It was our first look into color blocking, which became yes. such a huge thing for decades. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, those are, and the other one that was also um, on that playlist that was also really important, and this is also one Anna Wintour calls iconic, uh, John Galliano, 1994. Um, that was a real turning point in terms of making, there had been a lot of trends in the 80s and 90s in terms of fashion with elegance and punk from Vivian Westwood and, and new romanticism and all this type of thing. And John Galliano kind of took all that together and he really created the style that would define the rest of that decade. Mm -hmm. And so when, when you think of, you know, shows the last 30 years or so, um, that one stands out um, particularly. The other one that also stands out is Alexander McQueen 2000, I'm sorry, Alexander McQueen 2002, I think still for Givenchy, he got industrial paint robots from an automobile factory to spray a model on the runway as she spun around. And that dress in its painted form was at the Met exhibit um, and is, I believe, on permanent display in their offices in London. Um, and that no one had ever done that before. And that's kind of what's really cool about fashion at that level is you get these things that happen that have never happened before and then it completely informs everything else and it, you can't patent it or copyright it so it's knocked off a million quadrillion times all over the world and that one singular moment can define an era it can redefine style after an era it can you know change how we look at the world that's one of the great things about fashion is it helps in this very weird way it helps us shift our perspective and it also it is that's how it shows you that fashion is art. Like they're one in the same. There's, it's not just my graphic t-shirt. It is art that you are expressing. Mm. You know, you, don't, you almost could have a little uh, side slogan that it says fashion is that you buy, that you buy into. <laughs> it's art that you <laughs> buy into, right? You, like you, yep. you, you inhabit it and then it becomes part of 
no the best line no the best line from the devil wears prada stanley tucci is standing in the closet at runway and he said it's probably the most important piece of art because you live your life in it that's what makes fashion kind of different is it's something that's deeply creative if it takes 100 200 people to pay and you live your life in it we go to funerals we go to weddings after you visit radio have it altered we go to weddings we go to our first christening you you know there's the outfit you wore to the hospital when your child was born you have the outfit you came home from the hospital in um you know all this type of thing i mean this it's you know you have the first little thing you put your baby in whatever onesie little sort of thing that you found to take kid home in which you don't how many people forget that if you're having a kid get something for the kid to wear home but um so well i mean like like from the moment we can be days old and somebody has to decide what to put us in so we can go home we live our lives in it every single day someone and even in that stupid newborn onesie someone picked the fabric picked the pattern made sure it was hypoallergenic make sure there was nothing to pull or hurt the baby in any way there's a whole science behind children's clothing that's a whole thing um and, and the poor baby's only gonna fit into it for a couple weeks as it grows and then doesn't fit anymore um, so um yeah I mean, it's it's constant we live our lives in it and people kind of look down on fashion a lot or uh get very uh i say reverse snobbery about some of the art pieces that get put down whole couture runways but they don't realize whole couture is the r d for ready to wear whole couture is the f1 race and from what and what happens at that level then gets devolved down to ready to wear and then devolved down to you which the other iconic speech in devil wears product it was when miranda tells Andrea, why her blue crappy sweater is the result of people like her who make decisions about what colors things will be, what patterns things will be, what weight of yarns that will be used, all this type of thing. And that even at the lowest level, all of that gets funneled down to whatever it is that you put on. And it represents thousands of hours and dozens of decisions by hundreds of people. And it is definitely for sure one of the most fundamental intimate forms of self-expression because everybody has to wear clothes everybody picks out their own clothes everybody decides what they want to how they want to express themselves to the world and that's the first thing you see that's the first thing you notice and so we all pick our things based on how we want to be seen in the world yeah yeah that's really important um, going back to this idea of the Mondrian dress, you know, I mean, it's iconic, but um, I'm I'm trying I'm, I'm trying to think of something from Tolstoy where um, he talks about. Um, I'm not sure if it was humor. I think it was humor. Um, no, art. No, sorry, yeah, it was art. It was Tolstoy's version of art, and it has to hit the. It has to hit the plebeian. It has to hit like that substrate of the public. And so, you know, the, you've already said that the Mondrian dress was so transformative within the industry, but the the intellectual understanding of what the, you know, the separation of colors and the psychological stuff behind a Mondrian painting was not necessarily transferred down to, um, you know, the general public. And so how, how does it get, how does it keep enough strength if it's orientated in something like, uh, 
um, the cultural elite or the people that only read Tolstoy and and Mondrian? Well, I mean, we have to remember that dress is an, a potent symbol of the 60s. It, it, that dress, the Volkswagen Beetle, um, you know, uh, you know, the peace sign. I mean, there's a couple things that are totemic of that era. And if you want to symbolize them, all you have to do is post a picture of that. That piece of fashion has reached that level. I don't know that you can get any farther reach. As I said, when I was talking about it, that dress is so well known. People who have never ever thought about fashion for five minutes longer than whatever they bought at Walmart will recognize that garment. <laughs> and it was made to be worn by people. That's its job. And yet, it is so culturally potently powerful, you can put a picture of it and instantly, it's the 60s, it's cool, it's hip, it's mod, it's all of these things that have been ascribed to it out of a piece of clothing. Brady and I have been lucky enough when the YSL ex exhibition came to Denver, they had the complete series of that dress. It comes in five colorways. And we've actually seen it. I've stood two feet from it, in front of it, in my life, which is still- So hard not to touch things. Yes, <laughs> hands in pockets the whole time. Um, like, it's like, I've stood two feet from it. And you it want is... to touch it, right? You want to feel the fabric, right? Like, yes. If, if yes. you get like a secret pet petting, you'd be like in there kind of rubbing it. Oh, no, oh, yeah. I, I was so envious. We have a friend in Denver named Mona Lucero. She did the dressing of the mannequins for that show. And I'm oh, so shit. jealous because she got to touch all of it. We got mm -hmm. to touch nothing. <laughs> she got to touch all of it because she was doing the dressing of the mannequins. And so it was just, it, yeah, it, it, uh, yes, we had to really stop ourselves because, but it's still amazing to stand two feet from that and be like, that is, it's, it's totemic. It's such this huge symbol. It is this cultural tour de force. It is a, it, as from a construction perspective, it's a marvel in terms of cut and construction that had never been done before, not really. Not until McQueen matched Tartan on the bias had something so important been done in cut and construction. And, and to have just stood two feet from it in my life is still mind blowing. Like that happened, you know. Um, so, I mean, I think it reached, I think it does, I think it has reached re reached the plebeian level because it's just so recognizable in a way that almost no other fashion is. Like when me and Brady look at fashion, we can name designers and years and collections and blah, blah, blah because we, we, I used to do this, she still does this. That's been our lives. I cannot think of a single other piece of fashion that I could hold a picture up on a street and people would immediately know what it was. They would not at least one. have some thought, feeling, idea about it. They may not know the designer or the year or anything, but they will have seen it, recognized it, and they become like, oh, that's that cool 60s dress. Mm -hmm. That's reach. And no, I, I said, I can't think of a single other one garment, single garment that has that type of reach ever. Because there are, you know, there are other styles that are noteworthy for being certain time periods and everything like that you know and so you can pull out a ball gown and people will be like oh that looks kind of edwardian or you know that kind of stuff but nothing is just one specific gown has that much uh yeah that much notoriety 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I never thought of about, about it that way. Is it public knowledge? Like if you were there and you're feeling it and, and stuff like that, and there's no security around and you're getting away with it, which, which, would you be like looking at the seams and going, Oh, look what they did. Or is it public knowledge? You can kind of look at the blueprint of it and see how the, 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 the seams are all done and stuff like that. Is that something that's knowledge that's available to, to, uh, I mean, there, there are, you know, pattern schematics, things like that. Um, but with that one specifically, I would I would be going through looking at every seam, looking at every way it was put together and all the stitches and reading the history of it because you can tell a lot by the way people sew. Um, it's a very personal thing. So I would be going through just yeah. dissecting well, Elias, all of those. Yeah, things. and, and Elias, though, he didn't sew a lot himself. What he would do is he would design dresses and sketch them and he had six sort of older frenchwomen that worked for him and he would hold up designs and the seamstresses would pick what they wanted to work on so he had yeah they had it at the exhibition the, you'd have the small desk and he would do the sketch and the ladies would come in and he would hold them up one by one and then they would pick what they wanted to work on and so somebody picked that one of the six picked that dress and and did that and then they you know labored many hours over it um but i mean yes but that's one of the kind of the cool things one of the uh films i mentioned in our series that um people should go watch if they really want to um is called the first monday in may it's a 2014 documentary about the lead up to the met gala from both the perspective of Vogue, which is the fashion, and the Met Gala Costume Institute, which is the exhibition. And uh, and the, the, the lead costume curator of the Met Gala does go to the YSL Foundation in Paris, which I have been to, and crawls through their 6,000-piece collection of YSL clothing in Paris that has been perfectly archived. They have the complete colorway run of the Mondrian dress that it comes in seven colorways came in seven colorways and um and they they have all of them there on perfectly preserved on hangers everyone is wearing gloves in white coats they have these gorgeous closets that you know move with the turn of a wheel everything cataloged perfectly all this type of thing um to preserve this archive of of clothing so um yeah if you want if you if you want to keep geeking out on this subject as we put it that documentary is a lot of is a lot of fun um especially because it also talks about um uh the alexander mcqueen show savage beauty um as well because the that was that show happened a year and a half after he uh committed suicide and it was kind of turned into this year and a half long funeral for the awful Talibla of the fashion world that was um, ACQ. And uh, and so, uh, and that show was sold out from the moment it opened to the moment it closed. And I think it was extended like three times because people were just absolutely crazy about it because you got to see all this wonderful stuff, the Horn of Plenty show, which from 2008, which was iconic. Um, all these different things so that's a good hour and a half sort of encapsulated geek out session um that's a lot of fun to uh to go and to go and look at and that show that year was china through the looking glass so there's a whole 
cultural aspect of how they did that Met Gala show um, that is quite, uh, quite, quite interesting and quite important. Hmm. Because fashion is yeah. also very cultural, you know. What's yeah. that? I said fashion is very cultural. In today's globalized world, it doesn't seem like it is. But, you know, back then, you, back, not very long ago, you could immediately recognize someone by their clothing, you know, and, yeah, and what, yeah. where they came from, if they were, you know, from around here or not, or all this type of thing. And so when, when you have the merging of East and West and trying to looking glass um, and a celebration of both American and Chinese designers, and they staged it in the Chinese galleries at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Um, so you've got fashion, you've got Chinese artifacts merging together, you have two cultures merging together, all this type of thing. It's um, it's quite brilliant. It's quite, quite brilliant. Well, and still, even to this day, even though we are a lot more globalized, there's still you know, certain cultures, certain religions, especially, that walking down the street, you can know part about what that person believes because of the way they dress. Yeah, if someone is, if someone is wearing a nun's habit, Catholic. If you're in a, a hijab or a niqab or a burqa, Muslim. Um, I grew up evangelical, so did Brady. We can see those folks from a mile away. You know, it's like, oh, your skirt goes below the knees. You're wearing conservative shoes and something that covers your neck and goes through clothes on your arm. You go to a Baptist church, don't you? Um, like, you know, so we can we can see them in a we can find them in a crowd. We can find our own. Um, you know, yeah. But e even in the crazy Christian world we grew up in, what's the first thing they regulated? Fashion. Fashion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but what do what did that same crowd do for you guys? Like, what 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 do they see when they see Cameron walking down the street or Brady walking down the street? What are their, you know, could they could they put you in a box or what would they? What are you trying to project? I would say I mean, maybe it depends on what you're doing, but like generally, what's your image that you try? So, for me personally, um, I always wear dresses. I always wear heels. That's just who I am. Um, but that's one of those things is because um, an old friend of mine told me when I first started my own business and designing and sewing and all of that and telling me that you you are your walking billboards like you do fashion you do art through fabric so if you don't look the part then nobody's going to know, but people are going to ask you questions because I wear vintage dresses and because I have the funky colored hair and because, you know, I'm always in a certain type of outfit. It's not nearly as difficult as people seem to think it is to wear a dress every day. Um, it's actually easier than picking out a shirt and a pair of pants at the same time. But, um, but yeah, I try to represent who I am as a person through wearing something always flashy, always noticeable. Yeah, I was going to I was going to playfully uh, play with you and ask you about your uh, your hair and, and say, <laughs> is that natural? <laughs> and watch how you look at me, <laughs> because that would be a, that would be an interesting, natural um, like genetic well, hair mm -hmm. color, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, and the interesting part about even the hair is when I first started doing 
bright alterations. I <laughs> really wanted to be very professional about this because my own business and I'm going to be really professional. And so I let my hair grow out and went back to my natural color and had a very professional average haircut and had so many people, so many mothers of the bride. Are you sure you really know what you're doing? Are you sure you really know how to do this? Where, where would you have known how to do this? And the second I dyed my hair some bizarre color, people stopped asking because I'm artistic now. So of course I know what yeah. I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now don't object with me. I'll I'll stare at you in a real evil way. Yeah, <laughs> that's going to really hurt my feelings. And you know, right? you have no right to do that. Yeah, yeah. No, Brady gets to have a lot more fun with fashion than I do. Um, I'm a big brown dude. People are already frightened of me just out of the box. So I try to dress in ways that are very non-threatening. Um, so I dress in a way that's all about kind of threat reduction. So I, and also I'm a bit old fashioned. So I like to dress in a sort of very quiet elegance. I'm the type of person that I will wear something very expensive. And if you know, you know, and if you don't, you don't, and that's okay. That's always been my style because I grew up in a world where people didn't show off that way. Everything was very understated. And I am a firm believer that elegance, the truest essence of elegance is understatement. So that's what I like to do is I like to be kind of very understated. And for me, the added benefit is that it puts people more at ease with me. It was like, I'm six foot, three, over, over 300 pounds. I'm a big dude. I might crush you or kill you. People are scared. And so I use fashion as a way to kind of put people at, at ease. And in my professional life, I have to look trustworthy. If you're going to, you know, watch the news on the Cameron Journal News Hour every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific, um, then you're going to, you know, I need to I need to channel my inner Walter Cronkite and my Edward R. Murrow um, and, and seem like I'm a trustworthy news person. And for me, that doesn't involve a suit, but it does involve certain colors and dressing a certain way and trying to, you know, project that sort of trustworthiness sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and, and but also being accessible because it's a big part of what I do. So um, it depends on where I am and where I'm going, sort of as to how much I dial that up or dial that down. Um, but yeah, it's all part of the decision-making process. I want to tell you guys a... Uh, uh a situation that that kind of irks me and um it'll probably say a lot about where i got what and how i value fashion but here's my perspective on on one particular um situation so you know I'm walking down the street and i see a chain of bicycle lists cyclists all riding and you know they're out of shape um middle-aged people doing a, a fun sort of bike ride, right? But if they if they have to goddamn well look like they're on the freaking Tour de France, and I think, why? Why are you spending that kind of money to <laughs> pretend that you've, you know, even you wear a shirt, looks like you have sponsors. Like, I just, I find it such a weird irony that people, like they want to ride the, is, is this what's going on? They want to ride the bike. They want to feel like they're like climbing the mountain, you know, and they're winning the race or something. Like, what is it about that sportswear that makes it a full industry? And isn't it like 
put your finger down your throat, you want to puke that we are so easily misled? You know, like, what, what do you guys think about that? So, um, I think both Cameron and I can agree that neither of us are big fans of sportswear in general either. Um, but a lot of that, again, it's the image. It's, I'm going to ride my bike. I'm going to be really good at this. I'm going to have this hobby forever. And I'm going to just really commit to this. So I'm going to buy what makes me look like I'm really committed to this. Painted. It may go in the basement after two bike rides. But when you're doing it, it makes you feel like you're really, this is your thing. And you look like you belong. And there's a, and to that, there's a group conformity aspect. So like when you go, not that I do this very often, but I live in the Seattle area. Um, and the, I know the type, they're down here too. Um, and they show up, it's kind of like, look at us, we're in our group uniform that shows that we're the bicyclists and we're doing bicycling. Because fashion also can be used as in-group conformity a lot. Um, that's why school uniforms work, military uniforms, all this type of thing. It's in-group conformity. Um, in employment, you you know, you have to be very careful to dress to the level of style of where you're going. Um, I've worked in offices that are very formal, like the state cap, the state senate in Colorado, where I could not enter the building without wearing a suit. I've also worked in HVAC, which is construction adjacent. I wore slacks and was politely asked to please wear jeans tomorrow. Um, so, you know, it's like the full, the full range. Um, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a form of in-group conformity and it sends, as we talked about fashion sending a message, it's that potent symbol of, look at me, I'm doing cycling. It might seem absurd, but it's part of the message. As, as a motorcycle club that all have to wear the same colors or, you know, I, I grew up as a punk rock kid in the 90s. Like what we wore was how you represented yourself and how you all look like you belong together. It's just, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the gang, like gangs do this all the there. time. Yeah. Yeah. Even the criminals no. use fashion to send a signal. The Crips and the Bloods choose specific band in the clothes so they know who each other are. Um, in prison gangs, you'll have all, like the white supremacist gangs, all shave their heads so they all have the skinhead look, and they all get tattoos with swastikas and things just so that they're a part of a group. They'll, uh, in black prison gangs, they'll all, you know, sag their pants a certain way, tie their shirts around their waist a certain way, all this type of thing to show who they are. Even criminals do fashion. Hardened <laughs> <laughs> criminals who've killed people will do fashion as an in-group conformity thing. I mean, the old yeah. mobsters all had to dress the same. Yeah. In-group conformity. That was even on The Sopranos. That picture of them sitting outside of Satrials in the tracksuits is iconic of that TV show because it was in-group conformity of a time and a place and a certain guy in New Jersey who did a certain thing, ate a certain way, lived a certain life, all this type of thing. And it's, and it, it's been parodied a million times on popular television. If you want greasy Italian guy from New Jersey get a fat dude in a beard in a tracksuit. Boom. Say, <laughs> say less. Say no more. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 become it, and so in, in a way it be, has become like these these pictographs that if you're in the know you can just put that thing up and it it there's a whole context behind that picture. 
Yeah, the Sopranos is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, you, you play off of the, um, you play off of the uh, assumptions and the prejudices, and you know maybe they're not all bad. I guess you know. I mean, depends how you use them, right? I well, I mean, but we can even use use an example. Why are you wearing a black bucket hat? Oh, it's blue, but yeah, I mostly because I've got like an incredibly um, like I got a receding hairline, and I like the bucket hat, and I um, I find that well, it's not just the receding hairline; it's kind of like thin up top, and my hair blows all over the place, and so this kind of functionally keeps it um, where I like it, and but also gives you a sense yeah. of comfort because then you. Don't have to worry about your hair blowing around or well, about your hairline going back, too, right? Yeah. Huh? yeah, but that's <laughs> but that's still but that's still sending but that's still sending a message because if you weren't wearing it, that would say something about you, your age, where you're at, all this type of thing. Whereas with the hat, that message is kind of curled up. That's still a decision of how you're putting yeah. yourself out in the world, how people will perceive you on this show, all this type of thing. It's yeah. it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah, and there's a convention in in uh, long form discussion. Say for example, like what was the reason behind Lex Friedman wearing a black suit and tie? You know, I mean, there's right. kind of a you know I don't know if it's something that's kind of proven itself out, but like I'm going to take this show seriously and I'm going to dress up and show that I'm really giving attention and I. You know this this will set this the, t the tone for the rest of, you know maybe this is after some sort of like ideal of a news broadcaster or an interview or something like that but i mean look at me i'm in a cabin in the woods it's a virtual background i'm just wearing a bucket hat looks like i'm going to go fishing you know tomorrow morning you know kind of thing right mm -hmm. yeah but you know i mean it's just like i mean same like you, Cameron, you know, and I guess with you, Brandy, you know, like I look at your background, Brandy, and I see all the nice threads in the workshop. And this is your kind of, it must be your, you know, your artisan sort of like work studio too, or something, right? You got like some tools of the trade there, right? Yeah. That you can it's my fitting on. room. So you got to make everything look kind of part of the look. Yeah. And in, and Cameron's <clears throat> going to be moving soon. So he's going to have a different studio, but you know, I mean, yeah, it just, it's... Uh... No, I, I angle the camera. I have a new camera now where I can kind of blur the background, but you can actually see over here my free write typewriter. It sits there because it looks good on camera because it makes me seem writerly, because that's my <laughs> primary thing. I also have a giant IBM Selectrix too that you can kind of see, but it, it's a nice background thing because it seems like, oh yes, I was just writing a novel and I've taken a break to come speak to you sort of thing. It puts people at ease. It makes them now feel you're, better. <laughs> you're accessorizing and you're taking dominion of your space. <laughs> so mm -hmm. some people's yeah. fashion is just this, then it becomes like, here's my nest and there's my typewriter and here's my this and that and blah, blah. Yeah. So yeah. You could be fashion designers. You could be interior designers. I suppose you could be both in one and the same if you wanted to, if you wanted to. Oh, it even, it even goes into, you know, looking for the right person to help you. Um, when I first got my new car, it had a very bad battery in it. And I was at the beach with my girl and the battery died and I didn't have my jumper like I do now. So I had to find someone who could jump my car. And so I'm looking up and down the beach and I'm looking for 
a man with a truck that's dirty and goes to work because he's going to have jumper cables. And so we're staring at him kind of like, I'm like, babe, we need a guy with a truck who looks like he goes to work. And so we see an F-250 over here, dirty with a, um, a toolbox in the back. Great. Let's go talk to him. He's likely to have jumper cables. He looks like he works construction. Let's go talk to him. But you probably know what he's doing. Yes. Yeah, you had to modify what you said too, because you, you knew who who he was and you know, what were the words that came out of your mouth? You'd be like, hey man, can I get a boost? <laughs> well, here's the thing. I, I, I had a strategy. I sent uh, I sent I sent the lady over to be like, Can you go ask me if you can Ooh, come jump yeah. jump the car? Because he's gonna let be more responsive. If I walk up, it's an immediate intimidation sort of thing. If she walks up, he's more going to be more willing to help. He did come over. He was very nice. And I also fixed the hood latch on his truck because his hood wasn't opening and he just needed to bend it back a little bit. So I bent it back into place, fixed his hood. He jumped my car. Everyone was happy. We went on our merry way. But even in that, even in that moment to find help, I was looking for symbols, signs, dress, style, things and kind of like, okay, if I go look at, if I look for these things, my chances of finding what I need go up. Mm -hmm. Well, it's just like when my son was little, um, I, that was one of the things I taught him at a very, very young age of if you ever got separated or ever got lost and couldn't find us, this is what a police uniform looks like. This is what a firefighter's uniform looks like. You find one of those or a mother with kids, and that's who you go talk to. Like, look for the image that people are representing because that's those are the safe places. Yeah. And, and in terms of a sicko radar, wouldn't it? I mean, there are those cherished, iconic images. You can imagine a child abductor, abduct, abductor, whatever, who uh, would dress up in a police uniform. Like, it's worse than just a child abductor. It's like, you, man, like, yeah. you know, you're, you're, really you're violating that. something that's more sacred than even the worst we can imagine, right? You know what I mean? Well, like, that was the thing with, like, Jeffrey Dahmer, what was so discordant about Jeffrey Dahmer. He was young, white, all-American, good-looking. I think he was an all-American football player. All this everything. We don't associate those symbols with a creep killer, serial killer dude. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it, that was what was so discordant. We expect that person to be look like the Green River Killer down here. Creepy, bad hair, all this stuff. Like, we have ideas about what a serial killer should look like. And, and Dahmer was so shocking because he broke all those stereotypes you know and that, he dressed I mean, nice all the time yeah. yes always very nice I yes i don't want to disrespect the horror horrors that he did but you know i'm playing a a funny skit of Dahmer in my head right now where he is completely truthful about what he's doing he's saying you know what look i want to take you home and eat you and she's like looking at him going Arrah! you know this kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> he like he's telling you yes <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, but that's, the, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, but that, but that's where, you know, we can, the messages that we send out can be incredibly truthful. They can also be incredibly deceptive because Brady's right. He always just nice. He showed up into court, you know, looking great and lovely. And that was what was so, I think beyond the cannibalism part, what was so shocking was that it didn't look like what we think the creeper should look like. And, and that's honestly true because here's the thing. Because in, in this in terms and this comes up in a lot in discussions of sexual assault, it's never usually the guy in the trench coat flashing you in the park you have to worry about. It's a pastor, it's a priest, it's people who 
dress nice, are close to your family, who you would have over for dinner, all this type of thing. You know, so when people say, oh, drag queens are coming for your kids, I'm like, ma'am, I'm more worried about your children's ministry pastor. I'm more worried about your youth ministry pastor than, than the drag queen, to be honest. Drag queens don't really like children because <laughs> they're gay. Right? <laughs> so, but, you're, but the children's pastor at your church, I'm much more concerned about because that's we have legal documentation of how often that happens in this country. I'm much more concerned about your priest. Like, you know, because this is a problem. People in places of power that dress nice, that look nice, that look safe, that seem safe. And you know, the drag queen is more different looking, taboo, taboo right. and also very similar to can be a little more off putting because of Uncanny Valley, because they look slightly different, like a clown, things like that. Lots of makeup, lots of that stuff. So for children, sometimes, you know, they're not as willing and you're nice youth pastor at your church who's you know, looks a certain way. Right. Yeah, we have this implicit, like you're, you know, if you, you're, there's a trust with with the parents and the children that if the parent says that this is a good, your pastor is a good person, I can leave you there. I mean, you just, okay, you know, mm -hmm. you know, um, so yeah, that's, yeah, that's a shame both uh, Cameron and I are involved. And that's the... why Brady didn't let her son in youth ministry at church as a child. <laughs> yep, he's never allowed to go to nursery. <laughs> because well, we that's... grew up in that world and we know <laughs> what goes down. <laughs> so that's... Wow. So you still yeah. know about it and you have to kind of navigate it or, but yeah, interesting. I mean, to be honest, the way her son is, that would have lasted all about 30 seconds because this is the child that said, and I'm quoting now, if you think someone was molesting me, you think I'd keep quiet about it, unquote. He was 10 when he said that because um, that's how long Brady and I have been friends. And, uh, and so that would have lasted about 30 seconds. But the, here's the sad reality is parents entrust their children, being serious now, parents entrust their children, small children, in a church environment, which is supposed to be safe, with people. And the unfortunate reality is while they're, and here's where the symbols are wrong, and this is why it's so discordant. They're looking for the creeper in the trench coat, or they're afraid of the gay dude, the drag queen, or whatever have you, where the reality is, it's the priest, it's the church pastor, it's all these sorts of trustworthy, the end up actually being the real threat. But because, I've, ironically, of the way they dress, the way they act, the way they are, we don't perceive them as a threat unless it unfortunately happened to you and you know how deceptive that can be, mm. you know. So you know how to um, homogenize and blend in, and that's an important uh, deceptive tactic too, that I don't want to stand out, you know, and for what reason? Maybe social anxiety, but maybe just, you know, like you explained, Cameron, it could be, you know, um, you know, the conformity of the church wearing, right? I mean, they, you implicitly trust your father, right? I mean, to use the metaphor, right? So. Right. No, and but that, that's where, you know, but that's where, you know, something like that fashion can be used as a weapon to put you at ease when you really should be in, when you really should be feeling you're in danger, you know? So that sword cuts both ways. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and and it's it's ironic that we have a conversation in this country about drag queen story hour and grooming and all this type of thing when it's like how many billions is the Catholic Church paying out 
Like, you want to talk about grooming? Look, you know, say, say less, you know, sort of thing. Um, and to be perfectly honest, if I ever had small children, quite frankly, I would trust the drag queen more. <laughs> like, it's, you know, um, my chances of something bad going happen are much, much less. And people act like drag queens are, sh these girls are showing up in nothing. But you look at it from a fashion perspective. Every time I've seen a drag queen story hour, everyone is wearing long crocs, skirts down to the ankle, collars up to here. It's like, my mom, that's what my mom wears to church. Very conservative. It might be in vinyl, but very conservative, you know, so that mm -hmm. nothing is showing and those sort of thing, you know, it's very, everyone's very carefully dressed, you know, sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and I guarantee you that that drug queen put more effort and time into making sure they were child appropriate than the children's pastor at the Baptist church down the road who is doing awful things that we don't want to talk about and is causing unnecessary trauma to children, which is about the lowest thing you can do in this world. Well, and um, I mean, if we're going on the religion base too, that's the other part of it is women's bodies are viewed so weirdly in religion atmospheres. And, you know, I've gotten accused by people in the church of thinking that, well, you know, you didn't wear such a low cut shirt, then I would, you're making me sin. You're making me sin by thinking inappropriate thoughts about you because your dress slipped off your shoulder slightly and it's making me sin. You're the fault. It's your fault for your body just existing and for the fashion that you wear. And, you know, yes, I think there's something, especially like for children's things and stuff like that to be dressed appropriate and things like that. But it's such a weird thing in religion of, blaming women and just the fact that we have shapes for being something that uh, that is a negative to men because we exist. And the reverse is not true. Like very rarely will you say, oh, men, well, I mean, when I, where I grew up, it was men didn't need to be covered up for various reasons, but it's never because, you know, well, if you're shirtless outside, a, five women are going to come attack you sort of thing. The narrative was completely different, um, you know, sort of thing. Um, you know, it was, the, there was no, there was much less pressure on, like growing up, much less pressure on the boys to get fashion right than there was on the girls. If a girl's skirt was too short, she was sent home. This really happened lots. If a Being boy comes, yes, if a boy come come dressed slightly inappropriately, that was kind of more forgivable. It, he could stay and kind of get away with it, sort of thing. Different standards, but I mean, ironically, all of this, everything we've talked about, all these rivers and creeks that we've gone down all have to do with something as pedantic as clothing. That's what I think is so cool about fashion is we have, this conversation has gone on for an hour and we have explored things that should have nothing to do with fashion. And yet all that leads back down to the big to river fashion. of fashion and clothing and what yeah. you wear and why you wear it. That's really kind of, that is interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, Brady, have you had any, I want to, I want to spend some time on this about the, um, the shoulder of your dress slipping down or something like this and mm -hmm. somebody experiencing sin. I mean, first of all, we, I don't know, I don't even know how to frame it really, but trying to step away from this idea of sin, 
um, and step right into the fact that women have power of attraction, right? I mean, I know that men have attractive powers too, but I think this is a, a, a unique power that, w- that women have. I mean, men pursue women for the most part. I mean, I know yeah. it happens the other way, but I mean, I think uh, a woman's sexuality is a, is, is a powerful thing to be able to wield and, um, and probably empowering, right? To, you know, to take yeah. charge of that sexuality and uh, flaunt it when you have it and accentuate it when you can and use it to cast a spell on us ridiculous heathens, you know? I mean... Yeah. I mean, and it is one of those things that, you know, especially working in the bridal industry and stuff like that, you know, women like to feel beautiful. They like to feel desirable. They like to feel loved. But at the same time, it's also wielded against us because how many times in a rape case have you heard the old tired line of, well, yeah, but look what she was wearing. She was asking for it. She... Talk to that guy and she had a short skirt on. So she's the reason why this happened. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it goes both ways. Yeah. And, and let's also remember like the age at which this conversation starts. Like I was really bothered by years and years because uh, the way we grew up, it seemed like, you know, as a boy, if you, you know, were naked near a girl, you would get her pregnant and your life would be over sort of thing. Biology doesn't work that way, but that's how, that's the, that was the narrative. And so oftentimes, especially in conservative, you know, circles, these conversations with girls start at 12 and 13. They were children playing with dolls last week. And now all of a sudden they are, you know, the temptress sublime. You know, they've gone from child to Hedy Lamar in as many weeks. And um, and that's a lot of pressure to put on young girls who just want to have fun and dress the way they dress and do what they're going to do and all this type of thing. Um, and there are some decisions, fashion decisions that women make that don't make any sense to me. I will never understand why women wear shorts that only come down to mid-thigh, like slightly below the, the vagina line. That will never make any sense to me. Wear what you want and go with God. I just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, <clears throat> that's fine. It's whatever. I helped raise my cousins and they all dressed like that. And I always was mysterious, but whatever, girls. Um, you know, and, and so you have to have this balance between being able to wear what you want and have fun and all this type of thing, but also understanding the male gaze. Um, there was a conversation between Meryl Streep and Anna Wintour where Meryl Streep remarked, we want our girls to have fun, we want them to be feminine, we want them to do all of these things, but we also have to have them understand the power of the male gaze and what that does. And that was honestly probably one of the most pressing things I've ever heard on the topic from an unexpected yeah. source sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and, and that's a lot of pressure at a very young age. And it's something that, again, male privilege strikes again, boys don't necessarily have to deal with it in the same way. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, when I was like 10, 11, I, even in a one piece, ba- piece bathing suit, I had to wear a men's t-shirt over top of it where the boys could just go swimming in their shorts because my body was temptations to them. Could make, could make something bad happen to me. Mm could make something good happen to you too, right? I mean, not all male gaze is, is contaminated with uh, um, nefarious. It's a powerful yes. biological binding force between people from which true love hopefully can emerge, right? I mean, yeah. 
and and uh, I mean that's not stuff I believe in now like I let my son's always been able to hang out with girls even in crop tops and all those things because I believe that he is a man he's a boy he's not um he's not out of control of his own self so um but but yeah that was that was something that I we, most women at a very young age even with or without religion and things like that but throughout history have been taught that we are responsible for our own safety and for our own purity and to keep ourselves covered because men can't be trusted and let's not forget a lot of this stuff was sometimes in law we talked about this in the fashion space sumptuary laws were a thing up until the 1970s in Britain, a woman could get arrested for wearing too many pieces of men's clothing. Even in New York City, a man could be arrested for wearing too many pieces of women's clothing. That was part of the Stonewall riots that sparked off the gay civil rights movement was cops arresting queer people over sumptuary laws. That was in 1969, wasn't that long ago. Um, they were also arresting queer people over um, sex in public and all this type of thing. And, and the original gay pride was a riot and bricks were thrown and it was led by someone that was a cross-dresser and is suspected to be trans marsha p johnson um so that um you know that's a, a, a very different sort of dynamic and i think when we talk about i mean i agree with you Dan. like sex and sexuality is, is of course incredibly powerful and, and and it can lead to to good things and bonding and all this type of thing but the problem is the pressure on women starts at such a young age you know, that conversation is very different at 16 than it is at 13. And I helped raise three girls and it is different. And they had boyfriends at a young age, younger than I would have necessarily approved of, but different family dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and it was, it's a very, you know, as they got older, they got a lot better handle on it. And that's where I think the difficulty for parents comes in is that these conversations start so young, you know, mm -hmm. you know, you, you can go from Polly Pocket and cartoons to, you know, temptress in no time at all. And that's quite a transition. And I say this as someone on the male side who really struggled with this whole, you know, puberty happens and all of a sudden I've been thrown into this world of sex and sexuality and reproduction and the evils of masturbation and all this type of thing and blah, blah, blah. Like that whole thing was just kind of like, wow, this is overwhelming and not what I signed up for. Um, yeah. I'm busy with my Legos. Can we talk about this sometime later yeah, on? Like, this is awkward. Yeah. Like, I'm not, I don't, I really don't care. Thank you and good night. Um, you know, so yeah, it's a very difficult thing. That's who I sympathize with the most. I think in this, in this group is young girls. Uh, I think the, the pressure is enormous because there's, um, you know, there's videos of, you know, what seems to be expected that are pretty much everywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, for a young woman, that's like, I, that's not what I want to do. And that's not even, you know, wait, wait for some sort of like, um, maybe it is a biological driver that, that, that makes you curious in those kind in that, in that kind of practice. But I mean, yeah, I think it could be pretty, pretty overwhelming to think about. Well, and, and, and now we have kind of the reverse. Funny. 
Well, and now we kind of have the reverse problem in fashion because now people are complaining that the fashion for young girls has gotten too sexy and young girls are being too sexualized. One of the common complaints we'll see on social media is, where's the one-piece bathing suit for my 10-year-old? Everything is a two-piece and that's just not appropriate. You know, and so you have this sort of changing conversation about it. And and especially when you're in the middle, as we are, of a moral panic with um, trans people and all this type of thing, similar to its cousin, Satanic Panic from the 80s. Um, uh, you, you know, people, are, you know, are looking, for, again, to send this message of, if I can cover my daughter in the right garment, she won't attract that attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To bring the conversation back to clothing and fashion again, um, you know, if, if I can find the one piece bathing suit that, you know, with the ruffle around the waist, it isn't too revealing and all this type of thing, then that will keep her safe and she won't attract the type of attention. And if I can't find that at a store, then that means the fashion industry is failing me. And, and, and that and, is and sexualizing and our children. Right. Yeah. 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 Which is just, I mean, that's a lot. Well, I mean, it's the power of clothing. It's the same thing as the resurgence of peasant dresses. That's a lot of where that yeah. came from, was just to cover girls more because people felt like it was getting too sexualized. And so now we're switching the other direction, which you will never catch me in a peasant dress. I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Well, several years ago, there was a woman named the Gas Princess who was running for uh, the presidency of Ukraine, and she would always put her hair in a peasant braid, which is a braid wrapped around the back of her head to make her seem more country and rural and down to earth. It's hard to be relatable when your net worth is $22 billion. Um, <laughs> but she tried. <laughs> so um, when you own the largest gas company in Ukraine, it's hard to feel relatable. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, but yes, yeah, but this whole conservative, you know, more rural, more sedate sort of thing, and our country does this. The Great Depression killed the flapper dress. You know, mm -hmm. um, anytime things get a little bit out of control, we kind of circle the wagons. And the first way we do that is by changing what we wear. It happened after the 2008 financial crisis. Going into that, it was low-cut jeans, lingerie on the outside, bare midriff, all this type of thing. Financial crisis happens, boom. White plain t-shirt, higher waisted jeans, much more conservative, much more covered, all this type of thing. And so when we're in the middle, basically, of a moral panic right now, um, people are looking for that conservative message to send to say, we're rejecting that. Maybe a little bit more conformity, right? Maybe a get back to work ethic uh, in, a, in, a, in a fashion that, uh, um, that promotes that, which... You know, I don't know what that looks like, but um, Carhartt is fashionable right now. Carhartt, Carhartt yeah. yeah, yeah, the working yeah. brand, yeah, yeah. Like, mm -hmm. like that's what dudes wear to construction sites because it lasts forever. You know, sort of. You know, that's you know. So I mean, but 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 now it's a point of fashion. You know, which I always laugh when I see people wearing clean Carhartt gear. I'm like, you don't. Like, that's just weird to me. Like, where's the scuff marks? Where's the dirt? Where's the rips and tears? Like, that's that's not, no. Like, yeah. Well, as you were talking about the Ukraine situation, we do that in our politics as well. Um, not only do you have to, you know, suits, that kind of stuff, dress, but if you look at 
when like in America, when we have two presidents running against each other, look at the ties, look at the color of the uh, their wives dresses because they represent their sides by the clothes that they wear, which is just so bizarre. <laughs> but well, and that's, and, that's, and that's something that's very tough to be the wife of a president because every single thing you wear is scrutinized every time you leave the house. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be photographed a dozen million times and all this sort of thing, you know. And that's, I think, one of the tough things. I think they've done something very clever since we've had a woman vice president for the first time. Never happened before. Um, the way that they style her is very consistent and very careful. They've kind of created a bit of, like Hillary Clinton, a kind of a uniform that she always kind of sticks to so that it doesn't become a fashion conversation. But she did have a terrible scandal because she did a a photo shoot for Vogue and she was wearing chucks and that was not the picture that they approved and uh, Vogue, Anna Wintour, went ahead with the picture of her in a pantsuit and chucks anyway and that caused in the fashion world a huge scandal and there were two camps. Camp A was like, oh, this photograph isn't, you know, necessarily very good like it doesn't seem finished sort of thing it doesn't make a good cover but group b and this was the interesting group group b was how dare you misrepresent the vice president of the united states by having her wear casual shoes on the cover of america's leading fashion magazine she should be in heels and, and it was almost like an affront to, to like like she, like they were cheapening her, disrespecting her, by putting out this image of, I'm the vice president, but don't take me very seriously because I'm wearing chucks. Whereas if she'd been wearing Manolo Blahnik, it would have been, take me seriously because I'm the vice president. And, and I just went on the also went against her just, right. people, that, people that aren't supportive of her or her politics, it became a, oh yeah, see, look, she doesn't even take this seriously. <laughs> yeah. And it also, for Republicans, became a flashpoint because Melania Trump was never invited to appear on the cover of Vogue. Kamala Harris got a cover, and they weren't even in office yet because it was the December issue, which the photo was taken in November. Wow. They didn't; they weren't in office till January twentieth. Um, and then Melania that's, Trump that's to was never asked. Vogue being a fashion magazine, how much power that still has as being something in the fashion industry? Of, I mean. We can swing votes by what and, you wear and, and by being and, in fashion. And one one of the one of the anti-elite arguments by the Trump crowd is a criticism of Vogue that in the four years the Trumps were in office, Melania Trump was never given a Vogue cover. And that and if you go to a Trump rally, they'll mention that a lot. A lot, a lot. And it's like, well, she's very glamorous. She was a model. She was she for one, she's already been in Vogue because she was a model. But either way, like she was never, she didn't get a first, was, Laura Bush had a first lady cover. Michelle Obama had two, um, you know, a sort of thing. You know, Hillary Clinton had one in the 90s. I mean, all this sort of thing. Um, but Melania Trump, and that was, you know, that that's that's New York blue state democratic elitism because then Melania Trump was not invited, sort of thing. Um, and uh, and so in that way, you know, that's an inner, which for me, as someone who does politics and news, that's where my old, one of my old careers and my present career intersects again. And and this is something where 
you know, in terms of respect and gravitas and all this type of thing, fashion moves the world in ways that we might not suspect. But as it turns out, it does matter what suit, what shoes the first woman vice president is wearing on the cover of Vogue. It does matter that Melania Trump is the first first lady in 40 years that doesn't get a Vogue cover. It, this stuff actually does matter. So fashion might seem stupid and trifling and dumb. And um, the girl I'm with right now thinks fashion is just the dumbest thing ever and is just like so ready for me to be done with this whole series and everything because she just hates all of this stuff. But the reality is you wouldn't from, from, from the That's middle. That's a hell of a plug for the show. I know. She's By the way, so ready. Come, yeah, she's just come so check ready. out the episode that I'm going to be recording that's ruining my 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 uh, my home life. <laughs> no, it's, it's, yeah, it's major it's, friction for every problem in my life. It's that my, my whole world is crumbling. So come come support me on this. Awesome yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, and maybe bring alcohol. I don't know. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I mean, so like from 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 the mid-Atlantic slave trade to the colonization of the new world to how are we going to perceive the first woman vice president? Fashion is there. To Cameron's home life conversation. <laughs> yes, to the all. fact that my girlfriend doesn't like fashion and thinks this is all utter garbo um and all this type of thing like like some, somehow camera on your matters. shoulder i think cameron when you're at home and you, you're gonna have a gopro there and it's just gonna be continual b footage of whatever <laughs> amazing inspiring words of wisdom come from the conversation between you and your significant other that'll be awesome <laughs> right like yeah yeah now the uh yeah she, she she i think she missed her calling as a communist in China, she would really like us to all wear uniforms that are all the same. And I'm like, you need to move to North Korea. I think they do that there. Um, they have hairstyles regulated by the government in North Korea, um, which I think is quirky. Isn't that so weird? Can you imagine going to a hair salon to pick the government approved hairstyles? That's North Korea. Like, they yeah. have them on the wall and you we have work. to pick from them. Yeah, it's so insane. So, I mean, at this point, I go to my hairstylist and just tell her, pick a color, whatever you feel like today. Whatever. <laughs> just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's so it's so crazy. Yeah. Uh, Kim Jong-un banned leather jackets because he likes wearing them and wanted to be the only one wearing them. So he banned them throughout North Korea. Sweet. Yeah. But I mean, here's the thing. Fashion is so important that even in the world's most, you know, harsh dictatorship, they're regulating hairstyles and leather jackets. Yeah. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. Yeah, it well, truly that is everywhere. Imagine, imagine you'd have to, you know, you, you conform right to a very specific, and it's like you've given them choice, but you haven't. But now you're blended in with that group of, of those people that... You know, yeah, and everybody kind of sort of looks the same and everyone has one of seven... I think there's 17 hairstyles that, you know, the clothes are all mass manufactured. There's very few of those. All of a sudden, even in the Soviet period, because of central planning, every consumer product was chosen by the central planner, planners in Moscow. So suits only came in whatever color fabrics the central planners ordered, in whatever styles the central planners determined. You know, in fact, in the late Soviet era, they said the fastest way to know something was out of style was when it got into shops in Russia because the central planners were consistently two to five years behind on style. So if you were wearing something yeah. that you had just bought at a shop, that was unfashionable. 
in the Soviet Union. It was much more fashionable to wear something you jury-rigged together because you could move fashion forward faster than the central planners in Moscow could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there we have it. We well, ended on a geopolitical note, I think. Yeah. Right? And with all of that, every single one of those people still gets up every day and picks which piece, which hairstyle, which what they're putting on, even with such a limited supply. Very good point. Very good point. Yeah. Something to think about. Thank you, you two, for spending an almost an hour and a half with me here. Um, <laughs> and I think it's been a good conversation. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal podcast. <laughs>